How you guys doing? Good. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. I'm going to read a verse to you that has nothing to do with our Bible study tonight, but we're going to pray this in as we begin. This is Isaiah 25, verse 4. You don't have to turn there. It says, For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. This is who God is. He's strength to the poor, strength to the needy in distress, refuge from the storm, and shade from the heat. Do you need that this evening? Do you need God to be your strength? Do you need him to be your refuge? Do you need him to be your shade? So let's pray that. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to be that in our lives. God, we thank you that you're greater than any difficulty that we face. Lord, that your strength is greater than our weakness. Lord, and we just claim the promise of your word. You're faithful to your word. We ask that you would come and fill us with your strength tonight. God, that you would be our refuge in the storm and the challenges and the difficulties of life. Shade is so wonderful in the heat, in the heat of the day, the heat of the summer, and in the trials of life, Lord, we need shade. So would you provide that? And as we go through your word tonight, you tell us, Father, that you've given us the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into truth. So would you send your Holy Spirit? Would you minimize distractions? Would you set me aside, give me grace and strength in teaching your word? In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I'm sure you've asked the question, what causes a society or an individual to unravel? Maybe you have a blanket at home that's been crocheted and it was a gift and you know if you get just the right piece of thread and you pull that that blanket can start to unravel. And it seems like the very fiber of a society just starts to unravel. Sometimes even in an individual person, you can look into their eyes and see a level of desperation and darkness and you just see this person starting to unravel right in front of you. And how does that happen? We're going to see in Judges 9 tonight that there's an individual that's unraveling in wickedness, but also Israel is unraveling in wickedness as well. And God's giving us a snapshot of the decay of idolatry. When we choose to not glorify God as God, nor be thankful, we start to unravel. If you'd please write down Romans chapter 1 and look it up later tonight or tomorrow morning, and God tells us what happens to an individual in his society when they reject God, when they don't glorify God as God, or not giving thanks to the Lord. Something happens. We look at idolatry in our lives and we go, it's not really that big of a deal. But God says that it's harlotry, that we're committing spiritually adultery before him. God is offended at the nation of Israel how quickly they could throw aside the Lord. So he's going to show us in these 57 verses, yes, we're going to attempt to do 57 verses tonight, just how far gone we can go when we drift from the Lord. The key point tonight is this, that we desperately need Jesus to rule our hearts. We desperately need Jesus to conquer us and for us to submit ourselves to him. So verse 1 of chapter 9, then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem. If you remember from last week's study, 
Abimelech is the son of Gideon. Jerubbabel is a nickname for Gideon. And Gideon had many sons. He's passed away. And now we focus in upon this one individual, Abimelech. To his father's brothers and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father's saying. So he goes and visits his family and he's got something on his heart to share. Verse 2. Please speak in the hearing of all of the men of Shechem, which is better for you that all the 70 sons of Jerubbabel reign over you or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. Gideon, Jerubbabel had 70 sons. So here comes Abimelech and he says, do you want all 70 of these brothers to rule over you or would you like to just have one. Of course, you only want one. Do you want 70 bosses or do you want one boss? And do you want a boss that you're related to or a boss that's a stranger to you? And that's what Abimelech is presenting. Notice that he's assuming or presuming or manipulating because we have no indication that these other brothers want to be king, but he's imposing that for his own gain. Verse 3 and his mother's brothers spoke all of these words concerning him in the hearing of all of the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. So they take the bait. Zing! We're going to go for this, and we're going to follow Abimelech. In verse 5, then he went to his father's house at Orpha and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. The unraveling of his soul, Abimelech, he rejected God. He didn't glorify God as God. He wasn't thankful. He got filled with selfishness, filled with power, filled with ambition to the point where he could kill his brothers, his 70 brothers. He kills all of them except for Jotham, the youngest, because he hid and he kills them on one stone. And the horrific detail of that, these men's lives end this day. Their fathers, their husbands. It's his own flesh and blood. Yes, they had different moms, but the same dad, Gideon. And we go, Gideon was their father. Look how far things can go in just one generation. It's been said, and it's absolutely true, that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? We've all noticed it. Sometimes we open up our mouth and our dad falls out. Like, how in the world did that happen? You know, I open up my mouth and my mom fell out. It's very true. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. But we are never allowed to put the scapegoat upon our parents and say, well, it was my dad's fault. It was my mom's fault. We're each responsible before God for the choices that we make. And this is what we should endeavor to do. It's difficult is try to maximize our parents' strengths. Every parent has a strength. You might have to look hard in your particular setting or or scenario if you you grew up in in a difficult home, but there's some strength that your parents had and look to maximize that strength and then try to minimize their weaknesses. Learn from their weaknesses. And that's the exact opposite of what Abimelech did. He forgets all of the positive traits of Gideon, and he goes in the direction that Gideon ended his life. That that last tone of Gideon's life is where Abimelech picks right up, and he is grasping for power by all means. We contrast this 
with the way that God desires to raise up a leader, that he's the one that raises them up. They humble themselves before God, and God's the one that lifts up. They don't have to step on people's toes. They don't have to kill others. They don't have to have selfish ambition come into their hearts and their lives. Let's bring this into August 2014. Do we see absolute brutality inside of our society? Do we see it taking place inside of families? It's not easy to talk about, but I think one of the things that shows us the gross wickedness of our society is when you do have a parent that kills their children and then kills themselves. And you go, how in the world does this happen? How do we get to this place as a society? And a lot of times it's young children where a mom goes in and drowns her babies and then she goes and kills herself. And people turn on their spouses, they turn on their kids, they turn on their parents. How does that happen? It happens when you reject God. It happens when you say, you know what, I know who God is, but I'm not going to glorify him as God or be thankful. You get to this place that we see Abimelech being at. Without the fear of God and a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's amazing how dark the human heart can get. Christ is the hope. Christ is the light of the world. All of our hearts can go to a very wicked place without a relationship with Christ and the fear of God being before us. In verse 6, And the men of Shechem gathered together all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. It seems to be that the terebinth tree was a a place of significance or a place of of gathering. It's referenced a lot throughout the, the Old Testament. God met with Gideon by the terebinth tree. And here they anoint Abimelech to be king. It's not that he's the king over all of Israel, but he's the king over Shechem. And Shechem's in Samaria. If you're thinking of Israel, you have Jerusalem, and then you also have the Sea of Galilee. And Shechem's right about here by Mount Gerizim, kind of right in the middle between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. Jotham's going to come on the scene with something to say in verse 7. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim, and he lifted his voice and cried out, and he said to them. Mount Gerizim is about 800 feet above Shechem. It does have a biblical history. It was the mountain where they would pronounce blessing. Mount Ebal was the mountain of cursing. From the law, all the curses of disobedience and the blessings of obedience came from Mount Gerizim. So he goes to this mountain and he lifts up his voice and he's got quite a pulpit. He's got the attention. He's the lone brother that has survived and he gives this parable. If you're a student of scripture, this is kind of interesting. This is the first parable in, in the Bible. You may be saying, well, what's a parable? It's a short story that has one single truth, one primary truth that it hits home. So we'll read through this this parable. He says, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. So the trees are seeking out a king. And they come to the olive tree, and they say, reign over us. Still a lot of olive trees in Israel today. Obviously, they produce olive oil. They give. They're a giving tree. They're a fruitful tree. They're very valuable. In verse 9, but the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which 
They honor God and men and go sway over trees. The olive trees are saying, I've got a job to do. I'm being fruitful here. Why would I give up that fruitfulness to be king over you? Then the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. Many figs in, in Israel. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway over trees? Something good about a fig, isn't there? You have to be careful to not eat too many. You know what I'm saying, what <laughs> take place there. But the figs are saying, I'm being fruitful. Why, why would I give up my fruitfulness to, to reign over you? Then the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go sway over trees? So there's rejection of being king. The olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, they're all busy being fruitful. Verse 14, then all of the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. The bramble was the most common tree. It's kind of like our scrub oak. You know, you don't go out and buy scrub oak at a nursery and put it into your your backyard. A, a A bramble tree doesn't produce anything. It's not like a olive tree. It's not like a fig tree. It's not like a vine. It, it has no fruit of its own. It, the wood cracked very easily, so you couldn't build furniture out of it. But this is all that's left, is the bramble. So the trees go to the, the bramble and say, rain over us. And the bramble said to the tree, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So the bramble is Abimelech. That's what Jotham is saying. He's willing to be your king and look out because you're going to come into his shade, but ultimately he'll burn you. And we'll see that is exactly what takes place as we travel through this chapter. Here comes Jotham's conclusion. Now, therefore, if you've acted in truth and in sincerity and making Abimelech king, And if you've dealt with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king, over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. So there we have it where he's the king over the men of Shechem, not the king over all of Israel. If then you've acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. Jotham's saying, if this is all on the up and up, and if this is in sincerity and truth, then fine, rejoice in Abimelech. But there is a a giant however here in verse 2. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and come from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Did you catch this? If this isn't up on the up and up, if this is wickedness that you killed these 70 sons, then you two wicked parties, you'll consume each other. Sometimes all you have to do is give a wicked person enough rope to hang themselves. That's what Joseph does here. He doesn't take revenge. He leaves this in God's hands. He's saying, if this is unsincerity and in truth, then great, let's let it go forward. But if this is in wickedness, all I've got to do is step back because you guys are both dynamite waiting to happen and eventually you're going to destroy yourself. 
a lot of times God's judgment, all he has to do is take his hands off and let things go on its natural course. And that's what we find here with Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Beer. Did he get drunk at Beer? I don't know. And he dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. So Jotham ran, and of course he didn't get drunk. He just was staying there in this city, Beer. It's an interesting name. Verse 22. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years. I find this really interesting. Three years of peace that Abimelech is able to get away with this wickedness. Why do you think God gave him three years? Because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. A lot of times God will give a season of blessing even when someone's in rebellion for the attempt for his kindness to bring them to repentance. So if you're in rebellion to God tonight and your life is still being blessed, don't justify that and think, well, God must be okay with my actions. It's his grace and his kindness that's preventing the hammer from dropping. But if you don't repent, the hammer will drop. So God waits this three years to see if Abimelech is going to repent on his own. Because now the judgment's going to come as we continue to read. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. There's two primary principles that we find in this section of Scripture. First is the decay of idolatry. What happens in Abimelech, what happens in Israel. But the other is this, is that God repays wickedness. And this is something that we find throughout Scripture. And it should humble us that if we choose to go on a wicked path, we're accountable to God, and God will repay. He's just. He, he will repay. But then also, too, if somebody wrongs you, it happens in life, doesn't it? I'm sure you have your own experience. For some of you, it may be very fresh. God knows. God sees. He will deal with it. And you may look and say, well, they're getting away with it, or there's no justice in society. There's no consequence for their actions. But God sees, and he will bring that just consequence. And so God intervenes here, and he sends an ill spirit that sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. They had peace up until this point, but now they're going to turn in on each other for destruction. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. See, be careful when you bind together with wicked men. Because eventually, that wickedness is going to turn towards you. Verse 24, then the crime, that, that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided him in killing of his brothers. So what did God see? The blood of the 70 sons of Gideon. The first murder, you know, where did it take place? Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. God has a conversation with Cain, and he says, I hear the blood of your brother crying out to me. The blood, God says, is crying out for justice. We look in Leviticus, and it tells us that when wickedness takes place, that the land actually vomits out the inhabitants. God intervenes to the point where the land actually says, you know what, I can't even tolerate this kind of wickedness anymore. 
vomits out the, the people that are living in the place. The, the consequence of the, the wickedness is, is so great. I think this is foundational. I think we really need to focus in upon this because we're living in a time where the sanctity of human life is being extremely reduced, where people don't see the value of a human soul. And that's really what takes place with Abimelech in his idolatry, that it's no big deal for him to murder. It's no big deal for him to end a human life. But to God, it's a big deal. He notices and the blood cries out for justice. Do you think it's the same today? Absolutely. Who are we to choose to end a human life? We should value that. It's created in God's image. There's something different about mankind from, from an animal. We're created in God's very image. We have capacity for relationship with God, capacity for relationship one for another. As we th- see things start to progress in our society, we're going to find more and more that there's a movement towards, well, just go ahead and knock off the elderly. Just go ahead and kill the elderly. Assisted suicide. I'm from Oregon. I love Oregon. It's a beautiful place, but it's a place that really needs God's touch. They're a state that the state of Oregon will pay for assisted suicide. If you're terminally ill, the state of Oregon will pay for you to be killed. You know what the state of Oregon is saying? We don't understand the sanctity of human life. We don't understand when blood is shed that it cries out before the Lord. And before you know it, you might find Christians that start to adopt an idea of, I've got a mom, I've got a dad, they know the Lord, they're suffering, so why not end their life so they can go home to be with the Lord? Who are we to choose when to end someone's life? Can I get an amen on that? And there's something with great intrinsic value with the elderly. They, They show us perspective. They've got so many lessons to teach to us And if we start to say there's no room in our lives for him and we're just going to go ahead and and murder the elderly because it's not good for the economy, you know, they're dark spots for the economy and so we're going to go ahead and do this, you know this, this is a painful reality. We already do that to our infants in the womb, don't we? And I don't bring that up in a judgmental way. I know that many of you, you've had an abortion at some time in your life, men that you contributed towards an abortion, we got to understand that that's wrong before the Lord. That those babies that get killed in the womb, that cries out before God, doesn't it? And the Lord sees that, and it breaks, it breaks his heart. And if you're in that place, I want you to know that God forgives you. And this church is not a place of judgment, and God wants to pour into your heart, into your life, and to, to bring that forgiveness that only he can, he can give and forgive. But as God's people... We've got to be ones that say, you know, it matters when someone gets murdered. It matters what's happening in Iraq, that people would go through, if you watch the news and you see what's happening with ISIS, this radical Islamic group that's going through and they're committing genocide. They're walking up and they're shooting people in the back of the head as they're lying on the ground. Their blood cries out before God. When people get murdered, in our city, we shouldn't be so calloused that we go, oh, another person got, got murdered. At least the Springs isn't as bad as Denver or it's not as bad as some, some other big city. No, someone's life just got ended unjustly. 
You know, their life just got taken from them. And in that moment, they stepped in and said, I'm going to play God in this person's life, and I'm going to kill them, and I'm going to, to end their life. But it's almost normal. We just live in this culture of death, and life matters. Your life matters. Some of you tonight are contemplating suicide, and you feel like it's not worth it, and you don't see any way out, and you're a child of God, and you're just depressed, and you're hurting, and you, guess what? Your life doesn't belong to you, and your blood has value. If you choose to take your life, you're murdering your own life, and that cries out to God. And God's got a great future for you. He's got a future and a hope. And we've got to reorient our values and go, you know what, Lord? I see the decay of idolatry. I can see what it does to our value of of human life. It gets us to this place. And what God saw here was the blood of these 70 innocent men, and he's coming to bring justice. Verse 25. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the troops of the mountains, They robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told Abimelech. Now, Gael, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So Gael is really the new Abimelech. The men of Shechem have found a new leader, and he's going to come up against Abimelech. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from the vineyards and trod them and made merry, and they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. So these guys do get drunk. They're not dwelling in beer, but they, they do get drunk. And they begin to get all angry at Abimelech. In verse 28, Then Gael the son of Ebeb said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerobabal, which is Gideon? And is not Zebal his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority. There you have it again. You've got another person with selfish ambition. I'm going to come in and take the authority for myself. I could do a better job. Then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. He's saying, come on and fight me. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. Little does Gael knows that Zebul's a double agent, that Zebul's is really for Abimelech. So here's Zebul's actions in verse 31. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Take note, Gael the son of Ebeb and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. So Zebul gives word to Abimelech that Gael is preparing for a war. Now therefore, get up by night, you and all the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. Verse 33. You guys still with me? We're going to kind of read through this and let this teach itself and see the consequences that come because of the wickedness. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early, rush upon the city, and when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. They're in four different groups. When Gael the son of Ebeb went out and stood in the entrance of the city, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, 
people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, you see the shadow of mountains as if they were men. Because Zebul's for Abimelech. So he's saying, nah, you're just, you're just seeing shadows of the mountains. So Gael spoke against him and said, see people are coming down from the center of the land and another company is coming from the, the diviner's terabith tree. Then Zebul said to him, where indeed is your mouth now? <laughs> With which you said, who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these people whom you despise? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So Zebul is saying, it's now time to put some feet to your words. You've been talking trash. Now go out there and back up your words. So Gael went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from them. And many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. What we're going to read, just to warn you, if you haven't read ahead, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. There's going to be so much death here in the next few verses. And what happens is the men of Shechem and Abimelech, they just destroy each other. And it's ultimately God bringing about justice for their actions. So verse 42, And it came about on that day that the people went out to the field and told Abimelech. So he took his companies, divided them into three companies, and they lay in wait in the field, and he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city. And he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and he killed the people who were in it. And he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. So he kills the whole city of people. Why does he put salt everywhere? So that they couldn't grow crops. So he's destroying the land as well. He continues in verse 46. Now when all of the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god of Berith. So they come to their temple, Baal Berith, their temple of Baal worship. And it was told Abimelech that all of the men of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. So you don't have to take my word for it that idolatry had entered into the men of Shechem. They worshipped a false god. This is who they were committed to, was Baal. And you see it translating into their actions. So now they're in their temple. They're surrounded. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bow from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the people who were with him, what you have seen me do, make haste and do as I've done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them so that all of the people over the tower Tower of Shechem died about a thousand men and women. So they burn them alive inside of this stronghold of Baal. Abimelech, he says, you know, just, just start cutting down wood. Everybody get your, get your own branch and just lay it up against this stronghold and we're going to light it on fire. Remember the parable of Jotham? He's saying if this isn't integrity, then the bramble, which is Abimelech, he's going to consume you. So be careful who you give your allegiance to. 
give, be careful who you say you're, you're going to follow. Because if it's not the Lord, it's going to bring to destruction. It almost seems at this point that Abimelech's going to get away with it. From every indication, it's like Abimelech's got the upper hand. He, he's going to dominate the men of Shechem. In verse 50, then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes, and he took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and the women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So they're in this stronghold, in this tower. They're at the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it. He drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. He's going to do the exact same thing here. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Now this is a splitting headache right here. This is God. This is God bringing about justice. This is God bringing about revenge. God does it in a way that it's clear that it's his hand. Abimelech has the victory. What are the chances that a woman's going to take a millstone, which is large, and, and just aim it perfect and land it right on Abimelech's head? However, you don't want to mess with the mamas, do you? You know? And she's probably got some of her kids with her and grandkids possibly, and she's like, I'm going to get this sucker. Here you go. And drops the millstone. It's God. It's God's hand bringing about this justice. When we see Christ, we see Christ in his first coming as a humble servant, meek, dying upon the cross as, as our Savior, risen from the dead. He didn't stay upon the cross. He rose. He ascended. He seated to the right hand of the Father, on the throne. And when he comes back, he comes back as the conquering king. And there is this aspect of Christ, whether you're either for him or against him. And in all of eternity, you want to be for him. You want to be with him. You want to be in him. The only thing that keeps us from God's judgment and God's wrath is Christ. And he's going to come and set everything right. And there's something humbling and sobering about that. I know that some of you have gone through horrific things. Some of you have had loved ones murdered. Some of you have had loved ones die in a, in a DUI. It, it's completely heartbreaking. There really hasn't been adequate justice for, for the loss that you, you've went through. You know, that person that has done that, God's going to hold them accountable. And if they come to Christ and they believe in Christ as their Savior, repent of their sins, the sacrifice of Christ is enough to provide just forgiveness for them. However, if they continue to harden their hearts and do what Abimelech's done, they're not going to get the last word. There's not one evil person that's going to stand at the end of all time and raise both hands and go, look, I got away with it. It was worth it. God's going to hold them accountable. When you read the Bible, you have to understand it ends with an exclamation point. It ends with Christ victorious. There is no doubt about this. He rules and reigns over the nations. He's the one who brings that justice. So we finish out the chapter in verse 54. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed me. So his young man thrust him through and he died. What a fool's death. Here he is. 
maybe an opportunity to repent at the ninth hour. And he's like, I just don't want people to know that a woman got me, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like, guys, when you're at the movie theater and, no, I wasn't crying. I, no, there's no way that I was crying in this movie right there. My tear ducts, they got seared at birth. No, you know. He's like, no, I, I can't be killed by a woman. So my armor bearer has to run me through. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. So once Abimelech dies, it's over. It's done. This, this uprising has ended. Key verse, verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. God repaid it. And I, I hope you understand. Some of you may be beating yourself up for things that you've done. And if you know Christ and you're in Christ, Christ has paid the consequence for that sin and you're no longer under the judgment of God. Isn't that good news? He separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. There's still natural consequences to our sin, but we're right with God and it's not God repaying us for, for our wickedness. So we can rest in that and we can be thankful for that because the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient. But those who are outside of Christ and don't know Christ, God is going to hold them accountable. And I'd like to read to you out of Romans 12. It's really the release for us when someone commits wickedness to us or around us. This is Romans 12, verse 17. I'll, I'll read to you. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in, in the sight of men. I think this was one of the first Bible verses my mom had me memorize. Because my brother and I would be fighting and she'd say, repay no one evil for evil. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's interesting, isn't it? As possible, as much as depends on you. Some people choose not to live in peace, but it shouldn't be on our ends. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. Jotham didn't avenge himself, even though his brothers had been brutally murdered. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We shouldn't try to do God's job. If I try to take vengeance for myself, then I'm stepping into territory where he reserves it for himself, doesn't he? He says, vengeance is mine, but let me take this, let me take care of this. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's always the temptation when we're accosted with evil to become evil ourselves. And the defense to that is give it over to God and do good to that person. Because in doing so, you're freed. You're freed from the bitterness. You're freed from the anger. You're freed from all of those things that lay inside of us. Back to Judges 9, it says, Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech. We end in verse 57. And all of the evil men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. God brought that evil back upon them, back upon their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. So Jotham's parable came true. Two primary principles for us. The first is decay of idolatry. We love our country. I think that we should love our country. God 
gives culture, he gives land. You know, when we were going over to uh, Africa, to Uganda, we flew over there on Ethiopia Air. And so when we first landed, we landed in Ethiopia, then took another flight down into Uganda. It was primarily Ethiopians that were on the flight. When they landed in Ethiopia, they were so happy. They were clapping and screaming and yelling because they were back in their land. They were in their homeland. That's where they're from. That's where, where their, their people are from. And we're Americans, and this is where we were born. And God has blessed this country abundantly. But we are seeing the decay of idolatry, aren't we? And so there's a prayer for our country that we would come back to God, that we would return to the Lord. It's only the Lord that's going to keep us from unraveling and going in a downward spiral out of control. But there's always hope. There's always hope. There's been great awakenings that have happened in our country. There's been movements of God through the power of his Holy Spirit. God doesn't want anyone to perish. But as you analyze our country, you've got to see it through a spiritual lens. First and foremost, there's a spiritual problem inside of our country. But then we need to get a little bit closer to home. And is there an idolatry issue inside of our hearts? Has something just gotten the wrong priority? Does something mean more to me than than the Lord? Or is the Lord in his proper place in our lives? See, Gideon couldn't do the necessary heart work in Israel that was needed. Only Jesus can do that. David couldn't do the necessary heart work in Israel, or even his own heart, only Jesus Christ could do that. The law couldn't do the necessary heart work in Israel. Only Jesus could do that. And for us to find idolatry conquered in our lives, it takes Jesus. It takes Jesus being magnified, seeing his love for us, his death, his, his resurrection, and daily saying, Jesus, I want you to rule my heart. Judges 9 is a very clear picture of what happens when Jesus doesn't rule the heart. And our hearts are deceitfully wicked. They're they're filled with this kind of evil apart from Christ. And it's a real clear reminder. It's a real sober reminder. God, I need you to rule me today. So I'm, I'm submitting to you. Jesus, it's the best thing for me, for you, to be in control of my life. So let's pray.